James chapter 4. We are in the book of James, making our way through. Today, uh, we're going to go through the first seven verses of James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 1 through 7 is our text today. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your, on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is in, in, enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel, the good news that you have given us grace through Jesus Christ. And we are no longer your enemies, but we are now called your children and even your friends. And Father, if we have been reconciled to you, then we certainly must be reconciled to one another. Father, we ask that you would take this word today and by your Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us, teach us. And may this word transform us and conform us to the very image of the Son of God. For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Chapter 4 begins with James addressing wars and fights among the brethren. Remember this letter is written to the church. It's written to the brethren. James repeatedly reminds us of this throughout this letter. And as we read these verses, we understand that he's writing to the church. And this chapter that we're going to look at today is in contrast to the peace that James wrote about at the end of chapter 3. So at the end of chapter 3, James talked about this peace. Now, as we begin chapter 4, he's talking about wars and fights. And he asks this question, where do wars and fights come from among you? Then he answers the question, do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? So he answers the question with a question. He asks this question about where wars and fights come from among you. And he uses two terms here that have the context of a military conflict. So the word translated wars, the first time the word wars is translated into English here in verse 1, conveys the meaning of a broader military campaign. So think about a nation declares war against another nation. We have a war. 
And within the context of that war, that greater campaign, there are many battles. So the word translated fights. Where do wars and fights come from? This word translated fights pictures the intense battles and conflicts that take place within this greater war or greater campaign. So you can think about any war, uh, which is the case. Think about the American Civil War. In that war, there were many battles, many fights fought within the context of that larger war. Again, James asked the question and then answered it, answers it himself with another question for his readers. Where do fights and wars come from? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? So there is a war going on inside of you. Paul writes about this in his letter to the Romans. In Romans uh, chapter 7 in particular, he talks about the things, the struggle within himself to do the things that, that he wills to do. He finds it difficult to do those things that he knows he should do. But he instead does the things that he knows that he should not do. He said, then I find, I discover there's a, there's a war going on inside of me. Sin resides in my members. And he makes this cry as we transition to the end of chapter 7 into chapter 8 in the, in the letter to the Romans. And he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so James here is writing about this war that is taking place within us. He calls it the war in your members that comes from your desires for pleasure. So the wars and the fights waged among Christ's body come from the desire for sensual pleasures. Those sinful pleasures wage war in your members. This pictures a real war being waged against us by the pleasures of the flesh that seek to subdue us and make us subservient to those sinful desires, to our sinful flesh, in rebellion against the Spirit of God. Now, when James writes about the desires for pleasure, now that if you, if you, in your Bible, for instance, I use a New King James Version, you'll see that that word desires is italicized because that word desires is not there in the original in the original text, it's there for our context. The word there is translated pleasures, and it's a word that's very often translated as lust. And when the Bible uses this word for pleasure, translated pleasure, it's always talking about sinful lust or sinful pleasures. So this is the war that's going on inside of us. And this word war now used again here, the the war going on because of the desires of the pleasures, that war, this word that Paul uses here, is a different word than that military campaign that we talked about. This is the same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. It's used seven times in the New Testament. One time it's translated soldier. Another time it's translated warreth or warfare or wars. It's a, it's a verb. Here, it's the same word Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 10.3 when he writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Or we don't wage war 
by fleshly means. We don't use our flesh. We don't use our own brain, our own carnality to wage spiritual warfare because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not of the flesh, but they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and arguments and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. And then Paul goes on and he finishes that in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 10. And he says, your obedience punishing, through your obedience, punishing all disobedience. Well, this is the context James is talking about here. He's talking about the warfare that's taking place within us. And we feel that and we experience that in many different ways, really all the time, if we're honest, right? Um, I'm, I'm happy to say my doctor's here today. and She is like the best doctor in the world. And if you want a good referral to a good doctor, see me after church. And my doctor knows that one of my struggles is, and you guys know this because you know how much I love food. You know how much I love to eat. And so I have an intense desire to eat good food. But that good food's not always good for me. You say, well, food's not sinful. Well, gluttony is a sin. And remember, we talked in this very letter in James about bridling our tongue, and the man who can bridle his tongue can bridle his whole body. And so this struggle goes on in lots of different ways, and we can't just write those things off and say, well, you know, food's not sinful. That's not the point. It's not that food is sinful. It's that my ability or your ability or willingness to bridle your unhindered desires. And any desire, it doesn't matter what it is, if it's unhindered and abandoned and it has control of you, that is sinful. And that's a desire that wages war within you. So I don't want you to think that because you're not struggling with some, you know, uh, sin that's obvious to everyone. And we can name lots of them here, right? But, But the thing I struggle with really is there's nothing wrong with it. Well, my question to you is, does that thing have control of you? Or do you have control over that thing? And if that thing, no matter what it is has control of you, you become a slave to it. And the only one you are to be a slave to is the Lord God Almighty. And so James is talking about these desires for pleasure that war in your members. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians how the way that we wage war against that, against those desires, bringing those things into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So what James is presenting here in James chapter 4 is kind of the reverse of what Paul is presenting there in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. So where Paul presents how we are to be spiritually warring against those strongholds, those arguments, and those thoughts, and bringing them into captivity to the obedience of Christ, James is warning us He's warning us of the war that is being waged against us by our own sinful pleasures in our flesh. 
Those sinful pleasures seek to bring us into captivity to the strongholds, the arguments and thoughts that lust against the spirit in us. And we've already looked in James chapter 1. Remember those thoughts that enter into our mind? If we leave those thoughts there and we let them stay there long enough, they conceive, they give birth, and when they're full grown, they bring forth death. And so we don't, we don't let that happen. We take those things captive and we incarcerate them and we make them obey Christ. That's literally what Paul says there in 2 Corinthians. And this is what James is presenting to us. He's warning us of this war that takes place with those sinful pleasures that want to bring us into captivity to our sin and to our flesh. These very sinful pleasures spill over into wars and fights against one another. So it's not just the struggle within yourself, but those sinful pleasures, those pleasures, those lusts of the flesh are what spill over and create conflict with one another. Our pride, our insistence to be right, our insistence to have our way and not someone else's. I heard someone recently ask the question, should I eat what my wife cooks or should I, what I like? Should my wife cook what I like or should I eat what my wife cooks? I won't say who asked that question, but I heard that question was asked and I thought it was very interesting. And and that's a great question because what that question does is, should I eat? Should my wife cook what I like or should I eat what my wife cooks? Well, what if, husband, you come home from work and your wife cooks supper and it's not what you like? Should you say, woman, take this away and cook me what I like? I wouldn't advise it personally myself. (laughs) I wouldn't do that with my wife, I know, (laughs) even when she's not feeling well. But here's the point. The point is, can we be a people that are willing to submit our own desires, submit our own preferences in our own way? Not all the time, but there are times when we all need to do that. There are times when we all must be willing to do that. You know, guys, some of you guys, when you go on a road trip and you go on a road trip with other guys, because I know how guys are. You all want to be the one driving, right? You don't like sitting in the driver's seat. You don't like, certainly don't like sitting in the back seat. But guess what? Guys, when a group of guys go somewhere, only one person can drive. So who's going to just submit their desire, their will, their funkiness? You know, I get all nervous. Well, I get too nervous. I can't, I've got to drive. No, you don't have to drive. You can Submit that and bring that into submission to Christ. Capture those thoughts. Incarcerate them. Make them obey Christ and just be a team player. These are the kind of things that James is talking about. These are the kind of things that spill over and create conflict. Churches are notorious for these things. Uh, It happens in churches. It happens in families. It happens everywhere. And so this is what James is warning us about. They spill over into fights against one another. And our sinful pleasures wage war internally and externally within our members and is experienced personally and 
corporately in the body of Christ. This word, I've already said this, but this word translated pleasure here is where we get our word hedonism from. So I don't want you to think that God is against pleasure because he's not. God created pleasure. And he created all different kinds of ways and flavors that we can experience pleasure. But this particular word that literally is pleasures, often translated lust, is used consistently in the New Testament in the Scripture to convey sinful pleasures, sinful desires, sinful lusts. And so those are the things that we need to bring into captivity. Those are the things that God wants us to capture and not us be captured by them. So I want to make sure that you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. God loves pleasure and he has given us a world filled with pleasures to experience. He just does not want us to be captivated in a slavish, in a sinful way by any pleasure, no matter how harmless or harmful that pleasure may be. For those not in Christ, outside the church, giving place to these sinful pleasures should be expected. So we should not, as Christians, look at the world and wonder why they can't get their act together. They can't get their act together because they're not in Christ. They're in darkness. They're trapped in sin and death just like you and I were before God's grace rescued us. So we're not throwing stones at anybody because we were all there. And maybe we're still there in some degree. It's always used, uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's those who are not in Christ, those who are outside the church. So we shouldn't be, ex, 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 we shouldn't be surprised by that. But for those who are in Christ, for those who walk in Christ, who walk by faith, who profess to be followers of Christ, we walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh, as members of His body. And so, as members of His body, as professing Christians, it should not be so that we are captivated by these things as we see the world being captivated by them. We've been shown how to wage effective warfare against our sinful pleasures and our lusts, that war against the Spirit. Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians, if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. By His grace in the power of the Spirit, we endure temptation, submitting ourselves to God and his will in the meekness of wisdom. Remember what meekness is. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is a person submitted to the will of God. Moses was the meekest man who lived on the face of the earth because Moses was completely submitted to his God. That's what the scripture says. And so meekness is submitting to the will of God, and that is wisdom. To submit to God's will. And so when we submit to the will of God and the meekness of wisdom, we will not see these wars and fightings erupt in us and spill over into others in the body of Christ or others in our family or others in our work group or others in our sphere of influence. In James verse 2, 
James describes how and what this war of our sinful desires produces. So God gives to those who pray, not to those who fight. God gives to those who pray, not to those who fight. We're in a war and the battle is raging, but God gives to those who pray, not to those who fight. James chapter 4 verse 2, you lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war and yet you do not have because you do not ask. To long for or to lust for something is not the same as praying for something. The petition of the lustful, murderous, or contentious is not recognized by God as prayer. Thus, you you lust and you do not have, James writes. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. The word translated murder here that James uses, guess what it is? It's the word murder. Some translators and some past commentators have said, well, we think James is really talking about envy here and not murder. But there's no textual evidence of that. He's talking about murder. Uh, So whether James is actually accusing someone he's writing to of actual murder would be pure conjecture on our part, and we're not going to do that. But I think we can safely say that there is no doubt that James is reminding us that there is such a thing as murderous lust, murderous envy, in murderous covetousness. We have clear scriptural examples of that reality, just two that pop off uh, the the page uh, that I thought of immediately as I was going through this text was Cain and David. Cain and David, just to name two, both committed murder out of envy and covetousness. You murder and covet and still cannot obtain. James instructs us that sin leads to emptiness and not the fullness we so often deceive ourselves into thinking it will bring us. We think sin's going to bring us so much pleasure, so much fulfillment, but the end of it there, the end thereof is death, the Bible tells us. At the end of sin, there is nothing but emptiness and death. James is describing a progressive descent into sin. You look with lust at what your neighbor has and you do not have. You lust after it. You desire it, but you don't have it. You murder and covet and still you cannot obtain. This descends into an all-out fight, a war, a conflict, whether it's between brothers or neighbors or nations. And it's not always a fight, a physical fight. That's not what I'm talking about. It's that fight of the will. The fight of the will that creates dissension in families. The fight of the will that creates dissension in churches. The fight of the will that creates dissension in nations. We have a nation so paralyzed by dissension right now because everybody wants their will to be done. And most of that will that they're seeking to be done is absolutely, completely sinful and contrary to God's will. But nonetheless, there is this intense desire that everybody has to see their will be done. That's not what Jesus taught us to pray, is it? He said, pray this, thou will be done. Pray to the Father in heaven and say, Lord, Your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. Not my will. Jesus in the garden prayed, Father, if this cup can pass, let it pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. All that this sinful pleasure lusting and envy and murderous covetousness gets you is nothing in the end. James very simply concludes, you do not have because you do not ask. And this asking James refers to points us to our need for prayer. James is pointing us to God so that we look to him in prayer instead of giving place to our sinful lust and covetous desires that lead to wars and fightings. We are to give place to God in humble surrender as we go to him in prayer. It is our privilege to go to God in prayer, to ask what we desire in order to obtain what we need. You can ask what you desire, but what God will actually give you is what you need. You do understand, I know you know this, what you desire and what you need are not always the same thing. When we submit our will to God, we will better understand why sometimes we desire certain things and God gives us other things. The power of our prayers do not just get us answers from heaven. More importantly, prayer conforms our will to the will of God. That is a key point for us to remember. For the privilege of going to God in prayer is not, let me repeat, is not a blank check for your will to be done. When we submit our will to the will of God in our prayers, we will see his will be done. Not in opposition to our will, but in agreement with it. This is what prayer does. It brings us into alignment with God's will. So that when we pray, Lord, your will be done, it's not going to be in opposition to what my will is. I don't know why this is doing this. I apologize. If you do not ask God because you fear or oppose his will, then you do not have because you do not ask. So the motive of our prayer matters. You ask and you do not receive, James writes, because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. When we do not ask, it's important, or when we do ask, it's important that we ask with the right motive. We may ask, but we may ask wrongly. Not in a technical sense, not wrong like our wording and our grammar or our speech is stammering. Not, not that kind of wrong. We ask amiss, meaning we ask with the wrong motive. James is referring to asking with sinful and self-centered motives. This goes back to these pleasures, remember? These sinful pleasures, these sinful desires, these sinful Lust. When we ask amiss, the issue is centered in the sinful motive of asking of God for the purpose of spending it on our own sinful pleasures. Think about the advertising and marketing world. So the advertising and marketing promoted by the world is constantly telling us what we, we, what we deserve to serve and to pamper ourselves. And this marketing works because we have a sin nature that is inclined toward pleasuring the self. 
the world is just taking advantage of, of what's here for their own profit. We see this not only in Madison Avenue marketing firms, but the church has bought into this lie of believing that we deserve our best life yet, which, of course, is measured by all the material success we can muster with little or no suffering, by the way. That, that carnal or fleshly theology is in direct contradiction to the Scripture. Paul prayed that I may know him in the fellowship of his sufferings, I'm going to be honest with you, church. I don't pray that prayer. I mean, I feel like I've I've got enough, you know, going on in the world already. I don't need to ask God to give me more suffering. but, But, you know, that should convict me because for some reason, the Apostle Paul prayed this prayer and he he made this plea. And he wrote this to the churches. He wrote it to the believers and he said, this is my prayer that I may know him. The power of his resurrection and the fellowship of. Of his sufferings. I don't know about you, but that's convicting. That's convicting to me. And this is why people, this is why people pray all sorts of things today. They pray all sorts of things today that are not the things for which they need to be praying. I pray all sorts of things. And it's not always what I need to be praying. God is not against pleasure. He created it in all sorts of forms and flavors. God is against sinful, self-centered, self-seeking pleasure that makes you and yourself the center of your world and everyone else's. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Still, sometimes in order to teach his children, the Lord gives people what they ask for. And and they're not knowing what the the consequence and the severity of those of the answer is going to be. Think Israel when they wanted a king. They said, God, Samuel, prophet Samuel, tell God we want a king like the other nations. Samuel was angry. Samuel complained to God. And God said, Samuel, don't take it personal because it's not a rejection of you. It's a rejection of me. They're rejecting me. And God said, I'm going to give Israel a king. And he said, now you warn Israel what's going to happen when they get a king. It's not going to be what they think. You don't want God to answer your desires and your prayers in that way. So one of our chief prayers should be, God, align my will with your will. Father, when I sense that my will is out of alignment with your will, don't give me what I'm praying for. Don't give me what I'm asking for, but bring me into alignment with your will because your will, your plan, your purpose, no matter how hard, no matter how difficult it is, is always good, and it is always the best. I may not understand it, God, but give me the grace to trust you even when I do not understand your ways. Help me to know God, just as Bonhoeffer prayed. 
Help me to know, God, that you know the way for me. Israel wanted to be like the nations. They wanted to be like the world and have a king like the rest of the world had. We should be careful of those desires. Because God, God is a jealous friend. James 4.4, James begins this verse and he says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I'm going to say that again, church. We need to hear this. Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Adulteresses. James lays the accusation squarely at our feet. It may have included physical adultery that James is addressing here. If that were true, it would fit right into the spiritual adultery that there is no doubt he is addressing in the church. Any sin we commit is a sin we commit against God. You do realize that. When David murdered his good man so that he could have that man's wife, David did not first go to the family of Uriah, the Hittite, and apologize. David went to God and apologized for his sin against him. So all sin, no matter what it is, is a sin against God. When when the Bible uses language calling God's people adulteresses, it is specifically referencing the sin of idolatry. And we don't have to have people bowing down to a statue, an idol, in order to be idolatrous. Um, That's not what we have going on in our culture today. What we have in our culture today is very many people who have made idols out of all sorts of things from objects to lifestyles to hobbies to all sorts of interests and pursuits. And don't forget social media and don't forget our devices. I was sitting somewhere the other day by myself in a crowd of people and I looked at how many people, almost all of them, were standing there carrying on conversations while at the same time on their devices. And most of their attention was directed toward their device, and they would occasionally glance up to the person they're talking to. Not throwing rocks, I got one too. But I'm just saying, we have lots of different ways that we can become idolaters today. In all of this, we must we most definitely see the idol we call self. In fact, it doesn't matter if you're bowing down to a totem pole or whether you're on your smart device and it has captivated your life and rules your life, that idolatry goes right back to self. This is humanism, materialism, and paganism at its best. James is writing to the church because it is Christianity at its worst. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah writing to God's people. Isaiah 57, 
verse 3 and verse 7 and 8. But come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Verse 7. On a lofty and high mountain you have set your bed. Even there you went up to offer sacrifice, as behind the doors of their post you have set up your remembrance. For you have uncovered yourself to those other than me and have gone up to them. You have enlarged your bed and made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed where you saw their nudity. The sin of idolatry is always sin that is centered in self to the exclusion of God. Especially today, idolatry can take many shapes and many forms. And many people like to think, listen to me, church, many people like to think that God is along for the ride in their idolatrous friendship with the world, but he is not. It doesn't matter how many crosses you wear around your neck, how many are pierced in your ear, how many you have tattooed on your body. That does not matter to God. What matters to God is who are you in love with? Who are you in alignment with? Who are you devoted to? Who have you given your life to? And who are you willing to lay down your life for? As Christians, we are called to self-sacrifice. To the world, this is crazy. For the world promotes a lifestyle that is anything but the sacrifice of self. In fact, it's all about self-promotion. And today with TikTok, you can promote yourself and get millions and millions of followers and make lots of money. And people are doing it every day. It's why TikTok is one of the major idols that exist in people's lives today. I could have named all kinds of other ones, but that just was the one that came to my mind. In fact, the world is all about self-glorification with virtually no limits applied any longer. The current culture, wars revolving around gender ideology is a prime example. It's not coming to our little community, to rural East Williamson County. It's here. It's been here for years. We're fighting it constantly as a church. It's here. Don't think it's not. It's here in our town. It's here in churches. Churches right here in our town, right now. Here's an example of the destructive sinfulness I'm talking about, the destructive idolatry that our culture has embraced. It's just one form of it. The hospital director of mental health, the chief psychologist for the University of California, San Francisco, her name is Diane Ehrenschaft. She has just declared that there is an infinite number of genders people can identify as. For example, this is coming directly from her, trans kids can now identify as, and I'm serious, and so is she, trans kids can now identify as Tootsie Roll Pop gender. There's lots of others. She said they're infinite. Whatever you can imagine, that can be your gender. Other genders that she included were gender Teslas, gender ambidextrous children, and gender smoothies. 
I, I'm just going to confess to you right now, this does not make, I, I can't make logical sense of this. And maybe I'm just old and old-fashioned, I don't know, but I, I, I can't wrap my head around this. But this is real. And that's just the tip of the iceberg that is seeking to sink our civilization. Now listen, we serve the God of resurrection. So our civilization may sink. I have no doubt that could happen, but that doesn't leave me without hope because I serve the God of resurrection. They murdered the Son of God and put him in a tomb and he was there for three days and then he conquered death and he came out of that tomb and he lives forevermore. So it doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter how horrible they, they are and what they do to our culture and destroy things and destroy lives. And it all may crash and burn, but God is the God of resurrection. So do not lose hope, church. Don't be angry about these things. Be righteously angry, but don't be sinfully angry. People need Jesus just like you needed Jesus and I needed Jesus. And there's, there's no other way for them. God always makes a way. Even if it means we're going to change out the microphone right in the middle of the service. So this sin, this idolatry, and the church, the church is compliant. Whether it's outright approval or whether it's mere silence. This is what we have going on with a lot of churches today. Mere silence. Well, I don't want to get in the controversy. It's too controversial. This is tantamount, according to Jesus, this is tantamount to spiritual adultery because any way you slice it, when the church is not standing up to, to oppose sin and this sort of wickedness and they remain silent... It's giving tacit approval of the same. After calling out those adulteresses, James then very clearly identifies the problem. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whether Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Until the church begins to stand up against sin boldly, publicly, and clearly, she has made herself a friend with the world and an enemy of God. That's not what I say. That's what the scripture says. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area in the kingdom of God. This is in agreement with the apostle John who wrote in 1 John 2.15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. In regards to the church and the life of the believer, this must not be so. As the body of Christ, we are to love God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our strength, with all our soul. We must be willing to call out sin as truthfully and as forcefully as Jesus, as John, as Paul, as James, as all of the apostles did. And they were all martyred. They were all killed except for John. He was the only one of the 12 apostles that died of old age. The rest of them were murdered because of their stand against sin and their promotion of the gospel. James 4, 5, or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously 
Remember, God is a jealous friend. But guess what? God is also a grace-filled friend. James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Our spirit left unbridled by faith and the Holy Spirit is prone to lust, to envy. Therefore, we need more grace to be given to us. In our sin, in our spiritual adultery, the Holy Spirit that dwells in us yearns jealously for our devotion to God in faithful obedience to him. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Who are the proud? Those who need grace, but do not know it. Who is the proud? Those who need grace, but do not know it. And will not admit it. In fact, Paul says it's not because they don't know it, it's because they willfully suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Who proudly exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. God resists the proud. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Who are the humble? Those who need grace and know that they need it. Who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. God gives more grace to the humble. It is better to be humble than it is to be proud, obviously. It doesn't always look that way. The psalmist, David, writes, God, why do the wicked prosper? God, why do the wicked never seem to be the ones that get sick or go broke or get poor? It seems like everything they do just turns to gold. And God says, don't worry about the wicked. I will judge the wicked one day and the wicked will get their due. You don't look at the wicked. You look to me. Better to have a little with peace than much with turmoil. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. God lifted up Abraham. He lifted up Job. He made those men. They would be the millionaire billionaires of their day in comparison to to what we understand today. God is not against riches. Again, he's not even against the pleasures that riches can provide for you. He is against riches being your God. He is against you being a slave to those pleasures that you can only get through the riches you desire. He is against you being so discontent that you can't be content with all that he has given you. And you are so blind to the goodness and the grace and the blessing that is all around us all the time. It's so prevalent that we can't see it. We become blind to it. Our prayer should be that God would help us to see the blessings all around us, the goodness all around us, the gifts all around us that he has so gracefully poured into our lives that we would be a people content with whatever station in life God has placed us in. Content, not complacent, 
work hard, be ambitious, strive to do better, strive to provide, strive to give your children more than what you had. And there's nothing wrong with that. We should be doing that. That's biblical, in fact. But don't strive so hard that that work, that career, that account, that nest egg becomes your idol and your God that you serve every day to the point that those children you're trying to bless don't even know who their dad is because dad is always at work and never engaged in our life. God is our friend. He's a graceful friend, but he is also our Lord. Verse 7 says, therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submission to God is not an option. It's a requirement. You may think you have a choice now, but one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For those who willingly submit to God, he promises that our enemy will flee. It is our rebellion and disobedience that gives place to the devil. Give him no place. Paul writes that in Ephesians 4.31. Do not give place to the devil. Give him no place. Submit to God and he will flee. Remember, by your good conduct, we show that our works are done in the meekness of wisdom, in the submission of wisdom. That is a child of God. Doing our works in the meekness of wisdom Pictures a child of God submitted to the Father. Our submission to the Father is our resistance to the devil. When you are submitted to God, you are resisting the devil. And when you submit to God, that serpent will flee from you. That is God's promise. And do not doubt it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. Jesus Christ died for us that we would have peace with God, that we would be free from sin and the clutches of the devil. We have been reconciled to the Father through the death of his Son. Peace is not without a cost, though. The peace that was purchased for us came at the highest price. It cost Jesus his life. Therefore, we must be willing to lay our own life down in self-sacrifice, for this is the life of the Christian. This table celebrates our peace with God as we celebrate the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was offered up for us on the cross. This is a table of thanksgiving. Every week we come to this table. Every week we have a thanksgiving feast. And this table reminds us of the most important and eternal reason we have to give thanks for all things and in All things, and that reason is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, welcome to his table and welcome to Jesus. You all are welcome. You you do not have to be members of Christ Fellowship Church, but if you are baptized members of his body, whether you are old or whether you are young, you are welcome to this table. We will all be served and we will eat and drink together. Please stand for your charge. We began today with the question posed by James, where do wars and fights come from among you? And James gave us the answer to his question. 
Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? James was writing to address conflicts arising from sin. We would be naive if we did not acknowledge the reality of similar conflicts in and all around us. James is addressing wars and fights that occur at all levels. These wars and fights occur in the family, in marriage with parent and child, between employers, employees, and even broader wars and conflicts in the church, in our communities, and even among nations. These wars and conflicts are real, and we must not simply ignore them. The desire for pleasure that war in your members is both personal and corporate. It affects you personally and your relationship to God, and it affects the corporate body of the church and your relationship to one another. Peace is not something that just happens. Peace must be guarded. It must be protected. And it must be something that we are willing to fight for. Live your life in a way that values his peace and his reconciliation purchased and provided for you by God's grace. You may lose battles in your spiritual warfare, but the war itself has already been won by Jesus Christ In the example of the American Civil War, many battles were won and lost on both sides, but there was one victor in the end. So it is with us. We fight many spiritual battles, but there is only one victor in the end. Christ is victor. Christ has already won the war. Take heart and fight on, for the victory is already ours in Christ. We win. There is no doubt about the outcome of the spiritual war we wage. And when you find yourself in a battle with sin, whether that sin may be whatever that sin may be and whoever else it may involve, know that it is rooted in the idolatry of self. Confess your sin to God. Confess to one another and repent of your sins. Those pleasures that war in your members, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. In other words, when you submit to God, you leave no place for the devil as you crucify yourself and give glory to God in your obedience, punishing all disobedience, as Paul so eloquently wrote. Amen. Let us sing our thanks together. Praise God from May the God of endurance and encouragement grant to you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. you. Have a great day.